Any list of best all-time fanzines that leaves out ugly things ain't no friend of mine. Published and edited by Mike Stacks, the mag is now in its 38th year and covers wild sounds from past dimensions, with a special love for beat, psychedelia, and garage. Each perfect bound issue is overstuffed with quality interviews, editorials, and reviews by a merry band of obsessive, non-snob contributors. Mike's feature articles are always a highlight. No one can touch his gift for masterful narratives on lost or forgotten musicians. I reached Mike at his home in San Diego. And away we go. Mike, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for asking me. Cheers. So first question. In my research for this interview, I discovered that in 2017, you received something called the Greg Shaw Award for Outstanding Contributions to Popular Cultural Preservation, presented by the Journal of Popular Music and Society. Congratulations on that. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, I think that was that's the only award that that I can uh, that I've ever received. I think, may, may, you know, even going back to school days. So it was it was nice to get that recognition, and uh, the fact that Greg Shaw, uh, his name was on it, meant a lot because uh, he was a huge part of, you know, why I'm doing what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Great, huge inspiration and uh, and kind of a a mentor to me in many ways. Can you talk a bit about his influence? I think he was also instrumental, first, maybe the influence of his fanzine writing, but also I think he was instrumental in getting you to come to the States in the first place. Yeah, I mean, it really, um, so many things come down to Greg Shaw, so many things in my life. Um, and I was living in England, and um, I wrote a letter to the Crawdaddies, who, who was a band that had an album on, on Bump Records, and uh, Greg passed that on to the band, and they invited me to come over and join. So Greg was instrumental in, in me taking that huge step as a teenager of moving from Yorkshire in some little village in Yorkshire to Southern California to play music uh, in the band The Crawdaddies. But beyond that, Greg was always encouraging not only about whatever bands I was doing and whatever music I was playing, but he uh, he saw that I was very deeply interested in the bands from the 60s and the history behind it all. And so he would always furnish me with whatever information I needed in order to research articles. And he really supported um, ugly things right from the beginning. And, um, you know, he, he was just a constant, anything I needed, he had it. He was like that with, I've known many people who've, who will say the same thing about Greg. You know, he was just very generous about sharing knowledge and uh, encouraging people and sort of he really believed in the network of fandom you know and how fans around the world connect and that's how you make a stronger scene that's how you make the good cool music grow and uh, he was a real nurturer of that garden he was like the the gardener of the 60s garage garden (laughs) what was it about his writing that resonated with you? What was special about Greg Shaw's criticism? Well, I mean, first of all, it was originally what hooked me was the subject matter. He was writing about lesser known bands from the 60s, which is what interested me. So, and he had great knowledge and understanding of it. So that was the first thing that hooked me. But after I read more books and fanzines, I realized that Greg's voice was among the most eloquent and um, knowledgeable uh, in a way that had humor. It was entertaining, 
uh, and it was yet it wasn't snotty and you know uh, derisive about other forms of music or you know except in a humorous way. Mm-hmm. A lot of fanzine writers have got such a chip on their shoulder about the world, you know, and they they want to correct everybody's. Uh, bad music taste or whatever. And I think probably when I first started out, I, I had an element of that too. Greg was never l- like that. He he was sincere and passionate and he was so intelligent that he could write, you know, in a really, um, you know, he gave, he just had so much, such good intuition about how things fit together, especially like a lot, the larger picture uh, of uh, music scenes and music genres. He was really good on the big picture. Which you know, which I've always struggled with with putting together the big picture. I'm better on the on the smaller details, you know. And uh, I really admired that in Greg, and and, and uh, hopefully I learned some lessons from reading and rereading his his work. I've been thinking about your writing the last few days, trying to come up with some questions and things to talk about. One thing that struck me, I wonder if anybody's brought this up to you before, is I, I don't know if I've ever seen you swear in your writing. Like there's, there's a <laughs> cleanliness. There's there's this. Um, aside from like this Greg Shaw like kind of sincerity and purity of just wanting to gush about this music that you're into, it's also just really clean. Like you just can't be bothered with throwing in a you know a random f bomb in there or cutting down another band. You, you're just more interested in just focusing on on the thing at hand, which is the music. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure I probably uh, dropped a few swear words in my writing, but I I try to I try not to do that, and I've probably done it less and less, um, you know, as I try to improve as a writer because I don't think it's necessary. I don't think it's needed. Um, there's always a better way of expressing something than just adding in an f bomb. Mm-hmm. You know, if you want to emphasize a point, there's other ways of doing it. And as far as attacking other artists, I, you know, I, I think I did that more in the earlier days of the fanzine. You know, you know, I, I found it kind of a turnoff when I saw it in other in other fanzines. You know, where, you know, some uh, article about say Link Ray would would feel it necessary to uh, knock, uh, you know, Joe Satriani or something. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean. Who cares? You know, that's not what we're interested in, you know? So yeah, Link Ray's cool. Let's just talk about Link Ray. We don't have to say why other guitar players are not as cool as Link Ray. That's kind of been my approach. And and, and I've always felt the idea is to try to bring people in, to bring people on board and to convince them of your argument, of your, uh, of your vision, and get them into the music rather than to turn them off by having a, you know, a snotty attitude and, you know, coming across, you know, like a jerk, basically. Yeah. Like you don't need to use the bands you're writing about as a club to beat other bands. Yeah. What's the point? You know, you know, you're either, you either like this kind of music or you don't. And uh, insulting other bands is, you know, I probably do it more when I'm not writing. I'm sure, you know, I sit around all day. you know, bitching about people's bad taste and te- how terrible music is. But, you know, what's the point of writing about that and putting a bunch of negative stuff out there? The, you know, it, there's so much positive stuff to say about the music that we do like. And, and that's really what you've got to convey is enthusiasm rather than, you know, some kind of phony punk attitude. Mm-hmm. I was going to say punk rock. Was that 
So you're growing up, you mentioned you were growing up in England in the 70s, and you were hugely into 60s R&B and garage rock. Was punk rock somewhere in the equation as well, too? Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, I was born in 1962. So when punk broke in England in 76, I was 14 years old. And uh, I think anyone growing up in England at that time felt that the music had gotten a bit stale. I mean, I was following music very closely from the age of like 10 or 11 years old. I was into the glam rock stuff that I saw on TV as a kid, you know, David Bowie especially, but also, you know, T-Rex, Sweet and all that. That had kind of faded away. Disco had come in and uh, blander pop music. And I was starting to instead look to things like the early Rolling Stones um, and the Beatles and Animals and the Kinks and things like that. So when punk came along, it was all of a sudden there was something exciting again like younger bands with a lot of energy a lot of attitude and so it was very exciting at first because it, it it had the same kind of energy as the early kinks and the who the, the stuff that that really gets you excited as especially as a teenager and that rebellious attitude is such an important part of it so uh yeah i i got really into it for the first uh couple of years i i continued to collect 60s music but also i was going out and buying you know, the new singles by, you know, the Sex Pistols and the Adverts and the Vibrators and the Saints and the Stranglers and, and everything, you know, and and going to a lot of shows. You know, I was 15, 15 and 16 years old going to these punk rock shows. But uh, I think by, by sort of 78, 79, I, it was already starting to lose its novelty for me. Mm-hmm. There was still some good music coming out, but... Uh, you know, the 60s stuff just kept drawing me more and more. You know, when you're that age and you only have a limited amount of money to spend on records, you know, you might only be able to buy one album. So are you going to buy this album by the Yardbirds or are you going to buy, you know, the uh, second album by the Adverts? Like, <laughs> I don't really need the second one. I got one, but I do need this Yardbirds album. So it really just became a matter of what was going to satisfy you more. What album were you going to play more most? So, uh, you know, it was always going to be the Yardbirds and the Pretty Things and things like that. Pretty Things is obviously a huge touchstone for you. I mean, the name of the mag itself, but just the fact that there's, I, I don't know if there's an issue of ugly things that doesn't talk about the pretty things. What was it about their music specifically that resonated with you? It, it, you know, I, I got there through the Stones, really. Um, I was a huge fan of, of uh, and still am, of the Rolling Stones, the, the Brian Jones era particularly. And uh, so I was looking for bands that embodied that kind of sound. I think it was actually, I became aware of them through, uh, also David Bowie did a, uh, Rosalind and Don't Bring Me Down on pinups. So he sort of gave them his endorsement. So I checked into them a bit more and, and, I, and it just re- really resonated with me. It was like everything I liked about the Stones, but but also the, the fact that they were the underdogs too. Mm-hmm. The whole image of and the, and uh, every record just seemed to be so great and, and so different. And, um, and Phil May's voice... Uh, I mean, I just, that voice was just amazed me, you know, and, and, um, he just had so much character and, and, um, I don't know. It, it just, 
from that point on, you know, that was kind of the yardstick by which any other band would be measured would be the pretty things. I'd I'd never heard anything better than that. And I, I still stand by that. I'm I'm always drawn to to the uh, the underdog team, the underdog band, yeah. um, rather than the the band that's successful and, and is filling up the stadiums. Um, I don't know why that is. It, it's uh, and I, and it's the same I know for a lot of other people. It, it's like being in a it's like you it's like being you know being in on a secret that is somehow hidden from everybody else. Yeah, there's something special about that feeling. Do you wish more people could catch on to what was special about SF Sorrow over something like Satanic Majesties? Well, of course. I mean, that's that's you know my one of my missions. You know, with the magazine is to say, you know, if you like, uh, you know, the Beatles, maybe you should check out the Shakers. You know, if you like, the, you know, the Rolling Stones, maybe you should check out the Pretty Things and. and so on down the line, because that's how I discovered music. You know, you keep on, you keep on digging, you know, for more. And, and there is always more and you never, you never run out, you know, listening to music. It's like a, a journey. And, um, you know, you don't, you don't arrive at a point where you have all the music that you need. At least, you know, I don't. And I know readers of ugly things don't. You're always looking for something to excite you that you haven't heard before. Yeah. So you mentioned you moved to Southern California in the early 80s to join the Crawdaddies. Culturally, what was that like for you? <laughs> it was uh, it was a big adjustment. I mean, I, it wasn't an impulsive decision so much, but in a way it was because uh, I just got out of high school and it, it was sort of like I was going to go to university, but I wasn't really too keen on that idea. And uh, this opportunity came to to do to be a part of a band playing that kind of music that that '60s British R&B music in a very authentic way. I couldn't pass up that opportunity, so I'd never, you know, I'd lived with my parents. You know, I was 18. I'd, I'd, I'd never lived away from home before, so I to get on a plane and go to another country on a tourist visa. <laughs> and just start a new life. It was, it was kind of reckless in a way, uh, but it was kind of a culture shock. I, I was, you know, I'd grown up in England. I'd, I'd uh, only ever been outside of England one time, you know, outside of the UK one time when I went on holiday to Malta as a kid. So, uh, you know, going all of a sudden landing in Los Angeles and, and uh, being dropped in the middle of this world that looked like, the Rockford Files, you know, <laughs> which was one of my favorite TV shows. It looked exactly like the Rockford Files. So uh, I'd come from this uh, very English sort of rural world or, or, you know, city world too. Northern, you know, sort of gray, northern, rainy, cold to this sort of palm trees and, you know, fast cars and big freeways and drive through food. It was... It was really a, a culture shock, but at the same time, it was really exciting. It was like running away to join the circus or something. You know, it was just, I mean, I wasn't really equipped. I didn't know what to expect. And, um, and it was a pretty steep learning curve, you know, because I didn't have anything to fall back on. You know, I, I, had, I think I had $200, you know, and a, and a bass guitar. That was it. 
yeah. and a visa that that expired in ninety days. So it was um, it was it was kind of crazy. Um, just just getting by, just just feeding myself and uh, <laughs> learning to deal with this strange world of Southern California and the music scene and and everything else. Did the Crawdaddies cross paths with early '80s punk? Were there gigs happening together, or did you guys ever sort of visit that world at all, or were they worlds apart? Yeah, I mean, it was sort of happening. I mean, the Crawdaddies was completely nobody else was doing what they were doing at that time. It was was 1980 and 81, and they'd been doing it since '78, so they were a complete anomaly. So, as I recall, at first uh, in '80 and '81. Most of the bands we played with were more on the new wave side of punk. Hmm. Um, they, you know, it was a sort of Southern California version of punk, and it was not especially aggressive or threatening or dangerous at all. It was quite, to me, a little bit comical <laughs> most <laughs> of the time. Um, uh, but it was sort of later. When, by the time I was in the Telltale Hearts, the, the hardcore punk scene had kind of exploded. So um, there, there was occasions where we'd be on bills with with hardcore bands. <laughs> Can you remember and any of it? Get... Can you remember any yeah, of those I, bills? I remember one particular show where where they were it, the place had a balcony and they were just throwing coins and, and cigarette lighters at us while we were playing. <laughs> and eventually, uh, one of the punks like unplugged the power, and we were sort of more or less thrown off the stage so that so that the the hardcore band could come on oh man and uh i i don't know it, it was it was funny in a way I, I never felt threatened even though i probably should have but uh <laughs> you know we had a lot of we had a lot of attitude about it so we would just kind of stood our ground and and uh you know, they they well, they would have cr- could have crushed us in, in a second because we were all like just skinny, not street fighting guys. But you know, we had we had the attitude that we were the coolest, and uh, so you know we'd face them down. And that was the one I remember particularly. But um, I, I do remember there was a lot of there was some interaction, and some of it was friendly too, hmm. because there were people that would go to see. Uh, you know, a hardcore band, you know, on Friday and then on Saturday they would come see the Telltale Hearts and the Gravedigger 5 play. I think we started winning over some of that audience. And, and um, I think part of it was because girls like to come to our shows because you could dance to our music. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and I think that was the problem with um, hardcore rather than the original punk scene is that it was not very inclusive of women. It was a very testosterone-fueled macho scene. Uh, it was always there was always a big mosh pit and uh, people, you know, fighting and and, uh, and the music was just thrashy and you know, women didn't really like it, but uh, they could come to a garage show and and uh, the music was fun and uh, you could dance and there were guys and girls so. I think having an audience that, that mixed, you know, male and female is always a good way to build a scene because, uh, you know, people want to meet members of the opposite sex. Mm-hmm. And was there much of a scene happening at that time in the early 80s with the Crawdaddies and others in Southern California? Um, it, it was a, it was very small. Uh, you know, uh, when I first joined the Crawdaddies, uh, 
I think there were two mods in San Diego that, that mm. used to come see us play, and everyone else was just sort of new wave or jocks or surfers or whatever, you know. Um, but gradually, the scene built. There was there was a mod scene and there was a garage scene, and it was a it was pretty flexible. People went back and forth between those things because you know there wasn't there wasn't that many bands and there wasn't that many people, so. Mods like garage music and garage people like mod music, and it, it, it all went together. Did you guys have aspirations to make it, whatever that even means? Like, what <laughs> what, what were your expectations of the band and how far you could reach with uh, with your music? It, it was for me. Um, I can only speak for myself, really. It was kind of the same as with the magazine. I wanted people to get turned onto that kind of music, and I had no expectations at all of about making it because you know the 1980s as far as i could was concerned you know we had nothing in common with what was happening on mtv what was happening on radio and you know we, we were completely on the outside of that uh, so I, I i didn't couldn't see any possible way that we could make it and, and i and i that was never a goal the goal was to to try to make some great music you know that that was true to what I liked. And, and and I think that was true for everybody else in the band. I said I couldn't speak for them, but I think they would they would pretty much agree. We we never had conversations with about how can we be more successful or how can we find a record deal or things like that. You know, we you know, we were more concerned with uh we got a record deal right away. Greg Shaw signed us, you know, within two months of the band forming. Again, Greg Shaw. He's like, oh, you've got a new band. Send me a demo. Send me, a, send him a demo. He's like, okay, well, do you want know, to make an album? That that was just so we had a record deal, and that mm-hmm. was good enough that it was Bomp. You know, we didn't want to. We weren't like other bands that were thought, okay, Bomp is our stepping stone to being on Warner Brothers. You know, once we uh, once we add some hairspray and spandex, you know, <laughs> like some of the bands did. You know, we didn't. We we would have you know died rather than done that, rather than compromised. So, um, yeah, we didn't have, you know, I think if, uh, if we had a, as far as I could see, the biggest goal I could see would be like, if you could be as popular as the cramps, that would be about as high as I could possibly envision, you know, mm-hmm. which never happened, of course, but I could see that was, that was the most successful band that I knew that hadn't compromised in any way to commercial pressures whatsoever. Just what they did happen to catch on with a larger audience. Oh yeah, I mean, and I could see why. You know, I mean, they they appeal to uh, across the board because they punks like the craziness of it and um, and the theatrical elements, and and then you know the rockabilly people liked them, garage people liked them. They had they you know they were just their own thing. You know, I I, I knew we weren't in that same kind of league. You know, they they had a much broader appeal, and they were much more singular than we were so when did ugly things start mike the first issue came out in early 1983 at that time i was in the telltale hearts and uh no i think uh no actually at that time i was still in the crawdaddies but um yeah i wanted to you know it was just another way of spreading the word about this music you know i was on a sort of missionary quest to convince people that the pretty things and the seeds and the music machine and Q65 were greater than 
flock of seagulls and Michael Jackson <laughs> and Motley Crue. <laughs> so that's what I did. And uh, so I thought, I don't, you know, I was always, I was always a writer. That was always my strongest talent in school as a kid. And I'd always put together little comic books and homemade magazines for my friends. So it seemed a logical move to put out a fanzine. So I think I made 200 copies and, and um, just to really sell in, in uh, San Diego and L.A. And um, I didn't expect it to sort of snowball like it did. What were some of the inspirations other than Bomp and Greg Shaw's work? What are some other fanzines you're reading at the time? Well, uh, really, the, I got to give major credit to Brian Hogg and Bambalam because mm-hmm. even when I was in England, that was really the first fanzine I think that I ever bought. I used to read all the weekly music papers, um, yeah. New Musical Express, Express especially. I should just, as an aside, yeah, New Musical Express was a huge influence because in the 70s they had such an amazing team of writers, um, Nick Kent and uh, McFarren and Charles Shaw Murray, mm-hmm. um, especially they were such great writers and they were such an inspiration to me. Um, but Bambalam was the first fanzine that I got that wasn't available at your local news agent. You had to order it through the mail. And I can't remember how I found out about it. Um, it might've been somehow mentioned in the new musical express, but, um, I, I started ordering it and, uh, started corresponding with Brian, you know, and I was 14, 15 years old every time there was a new issue, I would order it. And I would, re- I always remember he would send it uh, rolled up uh, <laughs> like it, as a, as a, in a cylinder, you know, with a brown paper uh, wrapped around it, not even in a tube and stamps stuck on the brown paper and my name, you know, it written in ballpoint pen on it. So if that would come through the front door and be sitting on my doormat, I would, you know, that was it for the next two or three days. I was up in my room pouring over every page of that over and over again and finding out about, you know, amazing music. Brian wrote a lot about, as you know, you know, the British beat bands, you know, which was my first love. But then he also would be writing about things like uh, the birds and the love and spoonful, mm-hmm. which I knew less about. I didn't know so much about bands like that, but through him, I began to discover the American bands and and he would also he was a bit like Greg in that I would I would write to him and ask him about things and he would send me cassettes of music later on and we would trade cassettes later on after I moved to the states but I think when I lived in England he would just occasionally send me a cassette if I asked for it maybe I would maybe I would send him a blank tape or a, you know one pound or something like that I don't remember but I remember him turning turning me onto a lot of music and and just that whole fanzine aesthetic that came originally from. Bambalam. And then from there, it was only after that that I discovered Who Put the Bomb, Greg Shaw's fancy from the States, and then um, Gorilla Beat, which was a magazine from Germany that wrote a lot about German bands and British bands from the 60s. And that was a really a huge inspiration too, because that helped me discover that there was a 60s you know, music scene in, in continental Europe that I'd never really given much thought to. Uh, that that became a really um, an obsession with me, you know, over time. One one quality that stands out about ugly things is these really detailed, 
no stone unturned pieces on obscure bands and musicians from the 60s and 70s. How did you land on this approach? And what do you enjoy about these kinds of really all-consuming articles? Um, I th- I've just really relied on my own instincts about that. Um, and and uh, And it's kind of evolved over time. I mean, in issue number two, I interviewed Sean Barnawell from The Music Machine. And, uh, you know, I can't remember how many pages that was. It might have been 10 or 15 pages. So it was, it was a really quite lengthy interview at the time for, some, for a musician that was from a band that had broken up many years earlier. I was reading it last night and you apologized for the length of it in the intro <laughs> to the piece. <laughs> I, I, I wanted to, you know, when, now I think about it, I don't think I was conscious about it at the time, but I remember reading the interviews in New Musical Express, you know, where, you know, they'll be talking to, you know, The Clash or something about their tour or their new album. And it would be pages and pages long. And it was really detailed. And, and, and I enjoyed that. And and I thought, why not do that for the bands from the 60s? I mean, even, you know, they're not together anymore. They don't have a new album or a new tour to talk about. But let's talk about their history. And, uh, you know, when you found guys like Sean Bonnewell, who hadn't spoken about the band for, you know, at that point, uh, 15 years, they've been broken up for, you know, 15 years, I would think, um, you know, he had a lot to say. It all came out because it had all been bottled up inside. Nobody had asked him about it. You know, it was 1983 now. Nobody cared what he did in 1966, except we did. So he was really happy to tell us everything uh, at length. And, and that was so exciting, you know, having his story come out and really be the first to share it in, at such length. And, and, uh, and it's continued from there because, you know, what I found is that what I really like as much as, I, as the music is the stories. I love stories. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm a avid reader and I love, I love stories and I love nonfiction. And so, you know, I realized that the stories of even the unknown bands were really interesting. And whereas, I think this is where I, I, you know, I kind of diverged from what I'd learned from Greg, because Greg Shaw's approach and the approach of a lot of music magazines and fanzines especially was really to document the records, the discographies. That was what Greg was great for, was compiling these extensive discographies of entire regions or entire record labels and entire bands, entire genres. I was more into like find one one of those records and then find the guys that made it and find the story behind the record and let's tell it in as much detail as possible because to me every time i read a story like that written by somebody else it was really exciting you know it 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 amplified the music a band i think that had a lot written about them that was not particularly successful was the Velvet Underground. I was a fan of them since I was 13 or 14 years old. And and there was quite a lot to read about the Velvet Underground. And every time you read more, it just made the music even more powerful and even more interesting and even more intriguing. So why not that for the pretty things? Why not that for the seeds and uh, all the other bands? That's what I wanted to do. And it's still what I really love to do is if there's a record that I, I love, it's like, let's find out 
how you know everything we can about how it was made what what was going on in the lives of the musicians before after and right there in the studio as they were playing so that's what i'm trying to do because it really brings the music alive it really i think illuminates it i mean a great record could will be still be great without knowing all those things but i find if you know more it brings it alive in a, in a new way yeah I wonder, are some of these musicians ever shocked at being found that somebody like you would go to the trouble of looking them up so many years later and wanting to know about the record they made many years earlier when they were maybe in their teens? Oh, yeah. Yeah. They're, many times they are, they are shocked or surprised or sometimes even suspicious. You know, why would you want to know about this? I think especially when, when we first started the magazine, because they thought that stuff was dead and buried, you know? And um, so a lot of times I think I had to convince them that, yeah, no, I'm sincere. We really do think that that 145 that you made is really something special. And uh, we really do want to know everything about it. And uh, and invariably they're only too happy once they know that because they were proud of it. If it's a good record, they were proud of it and uh, it meant something to them. So to tell their story is usually it's, you know, um, cathartic for them many, many times because they haven't talked about it before. They didn't think anybody cared. Even their kids, you know, didn't, didn't care anymore. All that stuff, all those records and scrapbooks were in a box in the cupboard somewhere or up in the attic. And, uh, you know, we'd make them get it down and, you know, let's talk about what you were doing when you were a teenager, when you were in this band. Yeah. I think, I think that means, that means something to them. And, uh, and that feels good too as as a writer as a researcher to uh to uh give some validation to a musician who maybe feels that they were a failure mm-hmm. um, because they didn't become as big as uh some other band that was in town because their record only sold 500 copies or 100 copies to say no well here we are it's 55 60 years later and uh the record is still great we're still li- listening to it people that weren't even born when it was made are loving your records. So yeah, it was good. You were a good musician. You did create something good. You did create something that had some value and could even be timeless. That strikes me as so different than the journalist who's just assigned, you know, cover this band. They just put a new album. They're playing a local show. We need you to go do an interview with them. But you, you've got, you'll have to establish trust with these sometimes suspicious musicians who've who've forgotten these things in the past and also i imagine there's just more potential for an emotional connection as well yeah a lot of times they know it may be the only time the story ever gets told so i tell them that too you know this may be the only time it gets told at, at length so let's talk about everything let's you know leave no stone unturned because this is going to be for the historical record i have that in my head and and I try to convince them of that. And, and uh, as you said, you know, there's not a, I mean, sometimes there is, but usually there's not a commercial component. They're not trying to sell anything. I'm not trying to sell anything other than the fact that this is a good record. So it's not about promoting the new album or uh, the new movie, the new tour. It's just uh, telling the story. Um, you know, it's, sometimes there's a commercial com- component because a record label is going to release an archival, you know, 
album of of their recordings. So there's a, occasionally uh, some commercial uh, motivation for them to talk, but when it comes right down to it, um, they're talking about something that is dead was dead and buried until we came along. Some of the articles that started as pieces and ugly things eventually became books. And what I'm thinking about particularly is your book, Swimming Through Darkness, which is a biography of a very little-known musician named Craig Smith from the 60s and 70s. Can you talk about that a bit, Mike? Uh, yeah. Yeah, Swim Through the Darkness is the title of the book. Um, well, where to begin on this one? Um, I, I, I discovered um, via a uh, sort of bootleg reissue this double album called Apache Inca that had come out in the early 70s, and it was credited to Matreya Kali. And it uh, the cover art was really amateurish, homemade, DIY-looking photographs and, and copious lists and liner notes that were obviously rambling, schizophrenic writing about how somebody called Craig Smith had reawakened as Maitreya Kali, the new Buddha, the new Messiah who would be crowned king of the world in the year 2000. So that was intriguing, but I expected that the music inside would be rambling, incoherent, schizophrenic, disturbed music. And uh, when I played it, I found that that, w- that was not the case at all. It was extremely well-crafted, beautiful singing, beautiful harmonies, really well-crafted songs, some of them quite commercial, some of them obviously recorded in the 60s, not the 70s. And I thought it was, this was a, just wonderful music. I mean, it, it sounded as good as, uh, you know, the Buffalo Springfield and the monkeys and the birds, that kind of California folk rock pop sound with psychedelic elements. So I, I, got, I became obsessed with how did this Craig Smith become this Maitreya Kali, this crazy looking hippie with wild eyes who thought he was uh, some kind of special powers and was somehow going to be, you know, saving the world with his, uh, because he was the son of God, you know, that was, you know, that, that story intrigued me. So I started digging and it was tough because Smith is of course the most common, you know, last name in the English language. And, uh, and as I, as I soon learned, he was also homeless and had been homeless since not long after that album came out. So there was, there was really very little paper trail, very little public records to trace this guy through the usual ways that I would find of tracking down musicians. So it took me 15 years to piece together the story um, of Craig Smith. And um, I, I published, I, I reached a point where I decided to publish the story in Ugly Things. And, um, and, it, and it got the biggest reaction of any story that I've ever written for the magazine. I got so many letters and emails from people who had schizophrenic brothers, sons, fathers, you know, um, who had experienced that kind of anguish where uh, a loved one um, essentially loses their mind um, and uh, becomes homeless or whatever. so I decided that this was this needed to be the story wasn't over the story wasn't finished and um, 
I decided to keep digging and uh, got a deal with um, Process Media, which was uh, a part of Feral House, Adam Parfrey, the late Adam Parfrey's uh, publishing company. Mm-hmm. Adam saw the, the value in this story and gave me the go-ahead to do it. And I spent another couple of years completing the book. It was really, a, a, for me, it was a life-changing experience really to, not to you know put too much hyperbole on it but it was um trying to track this uh lost musician and kind of save him from complete obscurity uh, you know and it, and it became quite literally saving him because um he died um homeless in a park and uh while i was still searching for him i came close to finding him many times you know i I had friends um, up there in uh, Studio City in North Hollywood where he was homeless and they would see him. And I would go up there and try to find him at these places where he'd been sighted. But he was a very elusive person. And I was never able to make direct contact with him, though I did get messages to him. And I got copies of the magazine to him. I got CDs of music to him. But I never managed to talk to him directly. And he died uh, homeless in a park and and his uh, remains were going to be uh, buried in a common grave along with uh, you know hundreds of others um and uh, i was able to rescue his uh, ashes from that fate you know that kind of became symbolic of my whole journey writing this book uh, of uh, rescuing this person from being their music and their story from being completely forgotten and completely thrown you know you know, on the, on a garbage heap, basically, you know? Um, so it was a very emotional journey and, um, and the book was so well received, you know, it's still, you know, I still get letters and emails all the time. And, um, uh, I kind of still feel like that story is still being <laughs> written to some extent. Um, but yeah, that was something that started with an ugly thing story and, uh, and grew into something beyond that. Do you hope that you ever inhabit a piece of writing or an article in that same kind of way, Mike? Do you have it in you? I don't know. I think every writer, every artist or musician is aspiring for that, you know, to that, to have something that transcends, uh, you know, its simple beginnings or whatever that resonates with people and lasts and touches people's lives. I mean, that's, you know, when I first started writing a fancy, that wasn't what I was going for. You know, I just wanted to let people know that, uh, you know, Q65 and the pretty things were cool. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> That's a lofty aspiration too. They're, those are awesome yeah. bands. But yeah. yeah. That, that was the only demand I was making on a reader. It was like, agree with me that this is good music. Uh, or maybe this is something you would like too. That was really it. But, you know, yeah. uh, it, now it's... Yeah, you, you you want as you get older and, and uh, more experienced, you, you know, you want it to be more than that in a way. You know, you want to have something that maybe going to last. You know, and maybe that's um, too much to ask. Maybe that's you know pretentious. I don't know, um, but you know, you only achieve better work by aspiring for something higher. You know, and that's you know what I'm trying to do. I mean, I'm not trying to preach any big message uh i just want want uh i just want to bring out the human side of these stories you know it's not just about a a first box and a 
cool haircut. You know, uh, you know, it, it was made by human beings, and and their stories are interesting. I think people are fascinating, and uh, I, you know, I love reading about uh, other people's lives, and and uh, I'm hoping that I'm telling stories that people will also enjoy or find interesting. I think it's important that these stories get told. Uh, that's another element of this: is that um, time is running out. Um, when I first started writing about bands from the '60s, it was only stuff that had only happened 15 or 20 years earlier. Uh, I was in my early 20s, and I was interviewing guys that were in the early 40s. You know, now I'm interviewing guys that are in their mid 70s, late 70s. Sometimes I recently interviewed somebody who was 89 years old. You know, and I'm in my 50s now. So, you know, there's no hiding the fact that this music is going to be lost and these stories will be lost if they're not told. So they need to be told while the, while the first-hand people that experience them are still with us because uh, as we've seen, and in the last year more than ever, they are dying. You know, that generation is dying away. Um, and soon there won't be anyone left to tell those stories. So it's important. It feels important in that way. And if that, you know, you know, I had someone once say that, you know, uh, uh, the ugly things is a very self-important fanzine. So, yeah, it is. <laughs> it, it is, uh, you know, in a way that, that does, I mean, it, it, because it does sound self-important that, oh, we must tell these stories. But, you know, it's true. It's true. I mean, and I'm not saying I, I'm not the only one telling these stories, Um there's other, there's other fanzines, there's other magazines, you know, books, and you know, there's a lot of, a lot of us out there, uh, getting these stories told, and and, uh, and I talk to other writers all the time, and we're all feeling the same way, when we're starting on a new story. How many are still even going to be alive? How many people involved in this story? Um, more and more, you're talking to the widow, to the brother, to the son, uh, than the actual person. So uh, yeah, the, there's a, time is running out. You worked at a newspaper for a number of years. Can you talk a bit about that experience and how it helped you take ugly things to the next level where ugly things essentially became your like a vocation for you? Yeah, that's a good that's a good question. Yeah, um there was there was a newspaper here uh, actually based in La Mesa where I live now. I, I didn't live in La Mesa at the time called the Union Jack and it was a monthly paper put out by two brothers from England, from Manchester. Uh, and it was sort of a, um, all the, it was basically a newspaper, all the news from Britain for British people living in the United States. So, um, you know, this was pre-internet, obviously. Now, uh, now you could just find all that news. You could find out the cricket scores and the <laughs> you know, and the stories about the celebrities that people over here don't care about, or the politics—you know—that's not that wasn't really covered in in the American press. So, it was a synopsis, you know, uh, every month of what had happened in Britain, and then also what was happening in the British community in the United States. And uh, so, I got a job working there, and there was only three of us, so I was just the the bottom guy of three, um, but doing a little bit of everything. And uh, I think I worked there for um, 12 years. And uh, it was fun because I was, even though writing and editing was only a small part of what I did, I w it taught me how to run a publication. 
uh, how to sell advertising, how to interact with advertisers, how to build a subscription database and interact with subscribers and readers, how to use um, desktop publishing programs, you know, which were just coming in. When I went there before that, they had been using the old typesetting machines. Um, but we were still shooting halftones with a big camera. I learned how to do that too. Um, so I learned how to put a put together a newspaper, you know, from top to bottom, you know, paste up and, uh, you know, as I said, half tones and, and uh, just the day-to-day running of a business that was a publishing concern. So I learned a lot. Um, and um, by uh, the early 2000s, I think the writing was on the wall that maybe that paper could not sustain itself um, because... People no longer needed the soccer results uh, once a month. They could find a way to do that every day. (laughs) The internet was starting to come in. And uh, in 2006, um, Anya and I were going to have a kid. Uh, Our son was born in June of that year. And that was when uh, I gave up the job at the Union Jack and started doing ugly things full time and uh, as a stay home father. So it was sink or swim time. But I, I, it was already getting to the point where the the magazine had been growing by leaps and bounds. And part of that I have to attribute to what I'd learned at the Union Jack, um, you know, how to interact with printers, you know, the different printing options and uh, um, all that pre-press stuff. You know, I learned all that stuff too. So I, the magazine grew by leaps and bounds during that time. And it was getting to the point where the income from the magazine was, you know, maybe starting to exceed what I was getting paid working at, you know, at the office of the Union Jack. So it, I gave up the job and, and uh, started doing ugly things full time. How surprised are people to hear that? Because you you are doing what you love. You've taken a fanzine essentially and and made it your living. How do people respond to that, and and how how do you respond to that on a day to day? Well, I don't think anyone's more surprised than me. Um, <laughs> well, you know, not because I didn't believe in it, but you know, when I started out, I never had any. You know, it, I was it was costing me money for many years. You know, I wasn't really making a profit from it. It was it was a hobby, and like any hobby, it costs you money. Um, so when it started making money. Uh, that was just a pleasant side effect, you know, and, and it, you know, it's great to do what you love, you know, and, and uh, I think what it is, I, is um, when you become so passionate about it, um, people respond to it and, and it becomes popular and all of a sudden you are making money. It wasn't ever what I was trying to do. Certainly I wanted to, you know, I would, you know, you were hoping that it would sell well and you were hoping that advertisers would advertise and, get a good response from their ads so they would continue to advertise but it wasn't the main motivation and i think that's why it was successful because people recognized that the that it was not a commercial enterprise it was a it was a venture of passion you know like it's still a fanzine you know mm-hmm. i still consider it a fanzine because uh it's written by fans for fans and there is uh we're not trying to we don't write about any new bands and that's not because there's not any good ones, but because I thought that would change the whole character of the magazine. Because once you do that, you have to choose which ones you write about and which ones you don't write about. And uh, you have to uh, play that game. 
you know, you have to, if a, if a band is taking, a band's record label is taking out a full page ad in your magazine and they want you to interview the band and review the record, you're under some sort of implied pressure to uh, give it favorable coverage. Yeah. And everyone could see that in every magazine. And uh, we don't have that. Um, I mean, certainly we're writing about bands that are also in the ads, but it's not s- such a directly uh, symbiotic relationship with, with the advertisers where, you know, I mean, I've lost advertisers because I've given their stuff bad reviews, but you've got to be honest. <laughs> so, yeah, I think people recognize that and, and that's what keeps it a fan scene. It just happens to make money, not not, not, a, not a lot of money, but it happens to make some money. How do you find writers, Mike? How do you find contributors for Ugly Things? Really, they they find me, you know, they, they find Ugly Things. They, invariably, they are readers who aspire to be writers and, and uh, have a story that they think they could tell in the pages of Ugly Things because no one else is probably going to want to do a 10-page story on that band. No one else will allow that. So um, some of them stick around and, and some of them just do one story and gone. You know, they just do something they wanted to do. So, yeah, and but over the years too, I've been lucky to have some, you know, pretty established writers write things for the magazine. People like Mick Farron, you know, who I, I mentioned earlier, I grew up mm-hmm. reading him, reading his books, reading his articles in New Musical Express. And, you know, he ended up writing for the magazine. That's been good. Or, or John Savage, you know, uh, who wrote the book England Streaming and, and written, you know, thousands of things. But, uh, you know, he wrote some articles. So I guess it's just because Ugly Things is a forum for stories that wouldn't appear anywhere else. I've been able to get all kinds of really good writers to contribute. And uh, there's sort of a core team of, of uh, maybe 10 or 15 writers that are in every issue. And then other than that, people flow in and out. You know, they'll, they'll write for a couple of issues and not write for a few years and then come back and, and write again. So um, there's always a lot of different people coming through. And, uh, um, but the core team is really strong. People like Doug Shepard and Laurent Bigot and Alex Demol. And, uh, you know, there's... You know, I, I don't want to list them all, but, you know, every issue that can be counted on to review all the reissues that they know best about and, and, and uh, write stories and, and what have you. What's the readership like, Mike? Do you have a sense of who is picking up ugly things? Yeah, I, I don't really, um, because then, the, uh, yeah, you, you don't, you, you meet them every now and then and they email, but it's all kinds of people. I mean, I, I've got readers that have been with us since, you know, the early 80s, you know, 36, 37 years, however many years it's been now. And then I have new ones coming in. I know that there's, some of them are guys that were in bands in the 60s. They're guys that are in their 70s. But I also know, uh, I get emails from from people that are, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old that are just discovering this music. And um, that's one of the reasons that we try to make it accessible for, we don't want to have an elitist kind of tone to things. Uh, It's got to be inclusive because I always figure there's people out there that don't know anything about this kind of music. So if they pick it up, it should still be interesting to them um, and and, uh, kind of draw them in to make them want to investigate. So there are younger readers, um, and I've noticed uh, just, you know, this week I'm mailing out subscriptions, which means basically I'm 
putting magazines in envelopes and sticking labels on them. So I noticed in the past few years, uh, more women's names. Um, oh, because, because in the past, you know, I, I would laugh that it was almost all male readers, you know, and, and that's, um, that's something to do with the male psyche. I think that there's more male record collectors. They just, there's something about the mentality of, uh, that is more male, but, but it's, I think that's changed in the last 10 years and more women are collecting records or wanting to know these stories. So yeah, that does feel good because you don't want to feel like it's some kind of men's only club. You know, it's, it's certainly not. And of course we write about lots of women, women musicians, women bands too. So, um, so it's all kinds of people. Um, and, uh, and hopefully, uh, it'll keep growing and it will keep adding new readers. And you're still making music with the loons. Can you tell us a bit about that band? Yeah, the loons, um, I guess we've been going for, uh, 25 years or so now at this point. Um, it's really what I've always wanted to do with a band and um, uh, the, the lineup that we have uh, four out of five of us have been playing together for over 20 years. So we're really close and uh, we have a real chemistry and um, we have a new drummer. He's been with us for over a year now and he, he fits in great too. I mean, the goal of the band is to make music that aspires to be as good as the, as the, as the bands from the sixties, you know, not not trying to copy them, not trying to do a historical reenactment, as I often call it, but <laughs> to, you know, make something that sounds like us, but is hopefully, you know, uh, you know, at least aspiring to be as good as those bands, you know, like just reach for that, you know, don't try and, uh, you know, I see bands that kind of dumb it down or uh, you know, deliberately don't tune their guitars to make it sound trashier, you know, you know, we try to sound as good as we can within our uh, limited, uh, you know, within the limits of our uh, musical abilities. And, and that's what I think all the best bands through time did, you know, they weren't trying to sound crappy, you know, bands were always trying to sound as, try to sound as good as possible. That's what we're trying to do. You know, we, you know, we want to be as good as the Yardbirds and the Pretty Things. I'm not saying we are, we aren't, you know, but we're trying, you know, and that's, that's how hopefully you achieve something. And, and it's just fun to play. I mean, we try to write a lot of original songs and uh, have a show that is exciting and um, fun for people to, to come and see, you know. That, that's another thing that I think gets forgotten in bands that you're there to entertain people, you know, so give them a good show, give them uh, give them something entertaining, give them something interesting and original and exciting and uh, all of those things, uh, you know, not something self-indulgent, uh, not something that's painful on their ears. Thanks to Mike for taking the time to chat. Learn more about his activities at ugly-things.com. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, you can support us by leaving a rating or review and telling a friend. We really appreciate it. If you do the Twitter thing, you can find us at Rock Pod. Take care, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. 